Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. Hello, everyone. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Carl Sweeney. And welcome back to the discourse. The second discourse this week uh, of the week where Carl and I will be talking about uh, all kinds of things. Pop culture, TV, entertainment, all kinds of stuff, movies, as we normally do. And if you want to find out a bit more and keep uh, on track with what we're doing, please do follow us on Twitter at uh, pod the discourse please do drop us an email about what you think about the show and suggestions etc at contact the discourse at gmail.com please do uh, leave us a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use it, it does massively help us get more listeners so thank you so much if you do that and also if you want bonus content like extra episodes ad free listening early episodes by at least a few yeah. days please do uh, please do subscribe to the Discourse Plus. Um, we've got some lovely subscribers already, and we really want to build that out. And you can find all the details on how to do that at the uh, in the show notes and uh, on our social media. So we'd love to see you over there, wouldn't we, Carl, really? We we would. And thanks, of course, to uh, the increasing increasingly large group of, uh, of Discourse Plus subscribers we've got now. Um, <laughs> also, yeah. I think it's worth pointing out, Tony, that, like you say, extra content and... It's over an hour's worth of bonus stuff at this point, isn't it? Because, um, well, as we record, we've released three bonus episodes. I think by the time people hear this, there might be a fourth, which is available to people. So, yeah, over an hour's bonus content, probably pushing on towards two with this fourth bonus. So um, this is actually quite a substantial amount, and it's growing all the time of stuff out there that isn't going to go out on the main show. It's just going to go to Discourse Plus listeners. So I think it's worth emphasising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Quite a bit of fun stuff where we go into lots of uh, interesting topics, I think. So uh, it's a small little sum a month to help support us and keep it going. So thanks, guys. Huge thanks if you do. We really appreciate it. So, Carl, why don't we talk <laughs> subtitles? Uh, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't love subtitles or who does love subtitles? And... Um, why are we talking about them on the discourse? We both saw that YouGov, uh, you know, the polling company I refer to a lot of the time. I think actually you sent this to me before I sent it to you, uh, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they had polled yeah. British people to find out who was watching with the subtitles on, basically. And they found a pretty interesting generational divide, whereby 61% of 18 to 24-year-olds regularly watch television with subtitles on. Now, that drops to 31% for the 25 to 49 uh, category that both of us occupy. And then down to 13%, sadly, sadly yeah. 
Down to 13%. <laughs> well, sadly that we occupied a category, yeah. Not sadly, but it's only 13%, I suppose. It is, so. um, yeah. 13% of 50 to 64-year-olds, and then it goes up a bit for 65 plus, 22%. Of course, um, maybe a few older people who have hearing problems, and that goes up as you get older, etc. So were you surprised, Tony, to see that number? Like I said, 61% of 18 to 24-year-olds. Were you aware of this as a trend, or did this take you by surprise? I don't think I was, actually, because, you know, there seems to be a, co- a consistent topic out there of attention spans amongst certain different age groups and also about the very fact of people actually wanting to focus a little bit more on what is being said in TV shows, movies, etc. I th- I don't think it, it did surprise me. I think there is a difference in generationally in about how media is being digested by particularly by that younger demographic, really. And I think they are, they've got a multitude of different things, I think, going on at once in the way that we didn't when we were their age, because we didn't have the technology. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not surprised. What about you? I was aware of this trend that increasing numbers of people were habitually watching TV with subtitles on. So I wasn't that surprised either. No, of course, there's a range of reasons why somebody might want to use subtitles, um, most obviously people were hearing problems, but there are other reasons too. Like there was an article by mm. Scott Bryan, who's a TV critic over here. He was saying that mm. uh, some people see it as a way to get more invested in what's going on on the screen. Some people like to be able to decipher certain things that maybe don't make sense. You know, it could be place names or country names, or, you know, company names and yeah, these yeah. kind of things you can't quite hear on a first view in necessarily without the subtitles. Also, they can give extra information, can't they? Like, uh, you know, a TV show can be playing a song or something on the soundtrack, and sometimes the subtitles will give you that, the name of the song or the name of the singer. So there are all sorts of reasons why people might choose to use them, and I wasn't surprised that there was a big generational split. And what I have found in my own experience is I, I would be in the category of I don't usually have them on. You know, most television I watch, I watch without subtitles. Mm. But I, I'm increasingly finding instances where I will put them on. Um, now, I use them, if I'm screening something in a class, I use them all the time. Because I, I think, because I know that younger people prefer them, because sometimes I have classes mm. with older people who prefer them too. So I just put them on as a matter of habit now, custom. Uh, no matter what class I'm with or what context in that, you know, what no, no matter what, I just look for subtitles there. But even at home, yeah. I'll occasionally put them on. So sometimes I find when I'm tired, having them on helps me focus a little bit. Sometimes when I'm re-watching something I know quite well, I'll throw the subtitles on just to see if I pick up anything from the dialogue via subtitles that I've missed before. When I watch something for podcast purposes, I usually have the subtitles on, because I do think that you will pick up on things that you've missed or you've misheard. So I find them really good if I'm making notes on something. You know, I'll put the subtitles on preparing for a podcast. Hmm. So, yeah, what I've noticed as well, though, Tony, is there isn't always perfect availability for subtitles. You know, if you rent yeah, stuff on true. Amazon Prime or whatever, you will see occasionally that they're not, they're not available. If you buy older DVDs, they don't always have them. So I, I, I think it's improved a lot, actually, in the last few years, the availability of subtitles. What about you? You never put them on, you said to me. You never watch stuff with subtitles, no. 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 I mean, obviously, if it's a, a drama that's not in English, I will. Because um, sometimes they don't automatically do it. Like you know, yeah. automatic. I think the, I watched the Netflix show that wasn't uh, English language, and they didn't. I think it was the eighteen ninety nine show actually um, that died a death very quickly, and and I, we had to go and look to actually put the subtitles on, which which I thought was quite strange because my expectation would be, well, it's been broadcast in England, 
don't expect everyone to be able to speak the language. So I understand it on that level. So what? It, um, it directed you straight to the dubbed, was it? Is that what they did? Oh, uh, well, yes. Yes, actually. And obviously, immediately, we were like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Like, dubbing is the worst <laughs> thing ever. Like, <laughs> we, like, we were like, this doesn't sound right. That doesn't fit the lips. So, yeah, we went and searched for the subtitles. So, in a situation, I'd much rather have subtitles over dubbing. I mean, every single time, without fail. But I don't get this subtitle thing to in the way you, 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 you've described. I, I, I appreciate everyone is different. And there are lots of different reasons why people might might use this and i've got nothing against anyone doing it i it just i've just never really thought to like and, and there's there's a conversation you know we talked to a few people on our discord channel about it and there was a mm. conversation about sound mixing being a major reason wasn't there and about whether actually people do it quite a lot of people do it because they can't hear dialogue within yeah. within tv shows now i'm i'm deaf as a post at points like i really am <laughs> Like I, my, I, my wife will call me from upstairs and she, I, I can't hear her, but I don't really have much of a problem. Occasionally you get, and I particularly find this with um, shows on Sky where suddenly you'll have a lot of noise when there's an action scene going on and then it goes really quiet when people are talking and I have to raise the volume. <laughs> but I don't well, that's, get the that's, same... it, that's exactly the phenomenon people were talking about, wasn't it? In the, in the yeah. Discord was that thing of, um, yeah, big action scenes or something where to connote excitement you'll get a loud you know you'll get loud mm. amplitude basically and then by comparison the dialogue will be really quiet to the point where you might not be able to hear it without subtitles so i i don't i have noticed that actually i noticed that the other day when i watched indiana jones and the temple of doom i noticed right. that like whenever the music swelled up it was uncommonly loud compared to the dialogue and it mm. wasn't quite to the point where i'd have to keep raising and lowering the volume but i think it was recognizably that phenomenon people were talking about in the chat that we had but um i'm not sensitive enough to it to the point where it's really annoyed me and i've had to keep using subtitles because of that but no it did seem like there were a few people saying it didn't there so mm. I, I think it is a genuine thing that's going on i just raise and lower the volume like and it's not <laughs> constant <laughs> i just find i would find subtitles i think for an english language show very off-putting because I think that I, you know, I want to be immersed in something, and I find, you know, it's different when it's a, a, a language I don't understand. That that it's almost like the brain works in a slightly different way in how you visualize what you're watching. I can't do that with English. If ever I've, I've watched something like there was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Spicer on YouTube, who does these very funny political satire. Is he um, the guy in the, the room next door? The room next door. That, yeah. yeah, and he's fantastic. Some of the stuff he does, but it, it, on his most recent video, video. Where he was, he was doing the the turnip woman, you know, from the government. Um, it let them eat turnips. That woman. Oh, yeah. then, then I can't remember her name, but yeah, um, <laughs> it had subtitles for the first time, and I was like, I can't like I, this is weird. Like I don't I don't need them. I can hear him, you know. So I, I I just don't I don't get it really. I don't get it. I I I and like I say, I understand there's lots of reasons why people would, but it, it would put me off. I think really, mm. and it would distract just, just... me. On your point about that, though, I do think you get used to it. And I think there is a difference, though. Sometimes they're more unobtrusive than others. Like, I was watching an old um, Twilight Zone episode recently with the subtitles on, and um, the text was huge. And, like, that get, that's, you know, that when that happens, it is really distracting. Yeah. I think the streaming <laughs> services have got better, I think, generally at having relatively, you know, clear but unobtrusive subtitles. I think I think you get accustomed to it. I do think... I can't think of a really dramatic example of what I'm about to say, but it does happen regularly. But I'll I realize I've misheard something when I see mm. the subtitles. 
Okay. You know, it never happens with something really crucial, but it might happen, especially with American shows where I don't quite understand the context or the cultural reference yeah. point or something. There'll be something that I will only be able to ascertain through the subtitles. So I think we found the one issue maybe that, that there is a significant generational split between us then. Like me being 36 means I can understand this as a trend more than you at 40 or 41 or whatever you are. You know. <laughs> So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm more I'm more in that older bracket now. But the, although the irony will be that I won't be able to hear anything eventually, and I'll need them, and that's yeah. the point. I'll have to just like you know suck it up and get used yeah. to it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it, it it is interesting on multiple levels. I think it is too it's too restrictive to suggest it is just a a phenomenon about detached sort of attention spans and everything like that. Yeah. I think there's a, there is a lot more to it there, and how how particularly younger people engage with media. I don't think it is just that, but I do think it's it's definite sign. I think that uh, the only worry I have is that it's almost like it could be seen as a little bit of a shortcut in a way, and not actually for people who are choosing to do it. No, I'm not talking about people who need subtitles. That's totally different. But I'm I'm mm. talking about people who choose to put them on. It feel it's it's like I mean it's not the same, but it's like these mental people who watch things at like two or three times speed. Now that like, I don't like. I don't now like I know I, I know a yeah. few of them and some of them might be listening to this and <laughs> if, you, if you are you are mental and I've been telling you this for years, right? Because I don't understand that. I don't understand that they can do it really. It's weird to me. But I think it's alongside the same kind of thing that it almost feels, it, it, it almost feels a little bit like a cheat. Like if you need that why, why can't you just, if it's a choice, why can't you just soak up what is being said in the way that it's presented? Well, like you said, there are um, there are people who process information better with the text there. I would also say that it, one thing I think is good about it is that I think younger viewers now are more readily uh, inclined to watch uh, a non-English language series. If, you know, English, mm. English or English language viewers uh, who are younger... I'm more happy now to watch things like Squid Game, whereas mm, I think mm. even a generation or two ago, that would have been much less likely. Absolutely, people yeah. people would have proactively chosen to seek mm. out stuff in another language. So I think that's one good um, aspect yeah. of it, though. Yeah. I agree with that. No, I totally agree with that. I think in that terms of that inclusivity and ex- expanding beyond just the English language, yeah, hundred percent. That's a great thing. Definitely, it's interesting. It will see how it, how, it, how it continues to develop if those demographics change. <laughs> Another topic that has been uh, doing the rounds, and this has probably been one of the biggest pieces of discourse out there, actually, in the last week or so, is yep. this issue about particularly circling around Roald Dahl and his his books and a really real furore about some of the language in his classic children's books, you know, that people have been reading for generations. But it's also now, it's seeped a little bit into the, uh, the James Bond series, so a little bit of Bond Corner today, guys, yep. where... There is now going to be a reissue of the Bond Ian Fleming canon to take out some of the offensive language, as there as there there was planned to be for Roald Dahl, and well, which there still will be, but the originals will also be republished. Right, that's, that's exactly. What to, I think yeah. so. There's been a bit of a change, uh, but it's sort of spread, hasn't it, Carl, into more of a discussion about book censorship, I guess, and the the uh, uh, feeding into these broader sort of cultural ideas now about that you know that are on television shows movies etc about classic material from a very different age in terms yeah. of race in terms of sex in terms of all these things that is now being seen as problematic it's, it's opened up quite the discussion hasn't it here it has and in a way i think it's good that we 
um, did those TV list episodes last week because it meant that we missed the first sort of week of this discourse, and now we can come back to it with. It's kind of been resolved yeah. a little bit in terms of the roll dial. We have the update that those originals will be published, actually. So um, now we can talk about it. I've actually gone above and beyond Tony and um, consulted somebody with some expertise what, in this you? area this week. <laughs> <laughs> you doing your research and done some research, and I've <laughs> that never happens. Somebody... Carl, that never happens. I know, I know, but actually, I've, I've spoken to somebody who um, who knows what she's talking about on this because I spoke to uh, Raquel Stetcher, who's obviously. Um, Great writer and podcaster, mm. my good friend, and also somebody who's worked uh, for a long time in children's publishing. So she sort of has an insight into this kind of area. She says that this phenomenon is more common than people think. This isn't just something that's erupted with the Roald Dahl changes. She says that when older text are, texts are republished, there is usually some editing done for that re- re-release or reissue. And that can be along the lines of replacing outdated or offensive language. It can mean things like, um, I think the phrase she used was light Americanization, when there are like spelling differences or cultural differences. So what she says, though, is that it sounds like, from what she has seen, that what's happened with Dahl's books goes beyond what is usually done. Because, so what has happened with the Dahl books in these altered versions is that hundreds of changes uh, apparently have been made to the original texts including passages not written by Dahl that have been added. I don't know if you've had a good look at them, but some of them do seem really clunky and they do seem to change the original meaning. So in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for example, there's um, in the old version, uh, Willy Wonka says, so I shipped them all over here, every man, woman and child in the Oompa Loompa tribe. And now in the revised version, that becomes, so they all agreed to come over each and every Oompa Loompa. Um, and then you have, <laughs> so you have quite a big, quite a big difference. A line in Matilda goes from "I'd knock her flat" to "I'd give her a right talking to." So again, I think that fundamentally changes what oh. that sentence is communicating. So yeah, there's a few different aspects to this. I think there's a difference between a Roald Dahl had agreed to make some changes to his own work within his own lifetime. But then this is something different. This is B, changes being imposed after he's gone. One of the difficulties mm. here for me is that actually the nastiness of Roald Dahl's books are a large part of why they're really interesting. You know, um, they're, they're great mm. children's books. They, they actually do scare the kids and get into their imaginations. You know, that was the same when I was a kid and it's worked with my children and yeah. so on and so forth. I think sanitize that and you are actually compromising that vision. So... I don't know. What's your sense on this, Tony? I'm a bit torn on this one, if I'm honest, because based on what you just said there, like some of those changes are patently a bit ridiculous. Yeah. But then when you say about how, yeah, the Roald Dahl books are quite scary for kids and there are there are elements of it, definitely. I agree. And, and I remember reading a lot of them when I was a kid, like you did, like a lot of us did. And I loved them, you know, like kids still do today. And as a kid, you're not necessarily going to get some of these darker meanings you know because you don't have the context you don't necessarily have the information but is there an argument to say that some of these if this if it's something that is violent necessarily or something that is is necessarily openly racist now this is i can't i don't know in terms of the dial stuff if there are specific things i know a, a friend of ours who we were talking to about this said that there was something in charlie and the chocolate factory that was extremely racist now it's certainly in the Ian Fleming books, there are passages in particularly Live and Let Die that are really beyond the pale now. And, and 
uh, part of me thinks, well, would I, would I really want my child to be reading that? Really? Would well, I, would I want them to be reading it? And then I, I suppose, you know, the, the, the role of a parent is obviously to help right. provide that context and have those discussions. And totally, I, I, I get that. But my worry is by them being out there in the way, in that unvarnished way, are they harmful? Now, in this in this age, you know, are they harmful more than not? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think our society has got less racist since the days that um, Ian Fleming was writing and also when Roald Dahl was writing? Well, my instinct is to say yes, but I'm yeah. a white man who lives in the West Country. Like, I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I think yes, they have. I think yes, yeah. they have overall. So, really? No I, no, I would agree with that. I think so. I think there's a huge way to go, but I think substantially our society is a lot less racist than it used to be in which case you know the presence of those books in the culture can't have kept things as they were can they they can't right. have caused that yeah. harm in that sense so if Roald Dahl's work is now judged to be harmful for children to be exposed to the best thing to do would be to let it go out of print now to be clear that's not my view I think they've got a lot of merit so I think it's what you said earlier. I think the onus would be on parents and guardians to place these things in their proper context for children. Mm. Now, that can involve like a, a level of spontaneous rewriting on behalf of the parent, i.e. you skip bits you don't want to read or you change a word yourself as you're reading or you stop and have a conversation about why something is a bit dodgy or so on and so forth. So I think, I think that's the healthy way to, to deal with it. I think we should also take the view that most readers, you know, most, and, and I would include children, but children and adults, it isn't as simple as just saying we're sponges who take things from what we encounter in books. You know, we learn how to act from lots of other places. So I guess my instinct would be giving children a sanitized Roald Dahl book is not going to have much of a positive effect. You know, it's not going to decrease harm in mm. that way. But I think you can make an argument that it's a case of, it's an act of literary vandalism. Like, like I said, those changes I've picked out, they're very clunky and inelegant. It's not just a simple light touch thing like Raquel described to me, which I can see the value for. Um, and I can see how there would be a, a necessity to do that in certain ways. But I think this certainly yeah. seems like it's sort of gone beyond that into something that is censorship, you know. Ian Fleming is a, another that... discussion, I think, as well. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I, I On the censorship thing, that is the that is the other flip side of it for me. Because... I, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea, certainly, that you would completely erase all of that Roald Dahl stuff and completely change it and the original stuff wouldn't be a, a, available. You know, it goes back to what we talked about, you know, previously, I think we talked about it previously, about the um, the, the, the Faulty Towers thing, you know, and the, the, the language there, you know, and and you have the you have the context applied now on... Yeah. on television channels you know I, I so people can choose people can choose to engage with that or not and i think that's the key i think i'm okay with the being a new print potentially out there of these things that maybe sands off some of these things and then people can make that choice you know honestly i don't know which one i would want them to read at this stage i really don't and i think i've got to think more about that and i've got to think about do because normally i'm i'm all for not necessarily messing with things that have come before. Like I would, I wouldn't have a problem say with my, with my child at the, at the right age for when it, they're ready to watch it, watching that episode of 40 towers with the, the, the use of those words, I wouldn't have a problem with that. So why do I have a problem with the books? Mm. So, so that this is the thing I have to think about, you know, is it, is it that, 
there is a specific thing here about actually reading words as opposed to television that people sometimes it sometimes washes over people a little well, bit more. Whereas with a book, words can imprint. And, and well, I don't know, maybe it's the power of words. I don't know. Let's talk about this a bit more in relation to Fleming, because this is sort of where the story has gone since the Roald Dahl clarification from the publisher. So, yeah, like you say, Ian Fleming publications releasing the Bond books again. Um, and there's been a similar controversy here where, you know, apparently they've had sensitivity readers go through them and make certain changes. Now, mm-hmm. what Ian Fleming publications say is that it's now a very different world from the 1950s. They say that Fleming approved changes to Live and Let Die in his lifetime and apparently preferred the amended version, which was for the US market. What they're saying is that they're applying the sensibilities of the revised Live and Let Die, which he approved, to the other titles in the series. And some of them remain unchanged. So I think Casino Royale, they've said, is completely unchanged and maybe some others. They stress that they are trying to keep as close as possible to the original text. They say, We are certain Ian Fleming would approve these edits. We believe the new Bond editions will extend their pleasure to new audiences. We are certain that is something Ian Fleming would have wanted. Now, what I would say is they can't possibly be certain because Fleming isn't here anymore. He might... <laughs> well, he's been dead for 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, he might have come to some of a view. He might have thought, well, Live and Let Die is a special case. I didn't mind it in that instance, but anything else is a bit too much, you know. We just don't know because he's dead, right? The thing is that I don't think you can easily modify Live and Let Die, especially, or the other Bond mm. books in particular, to deal with the troublesome content. I think you'd have nothing left. <laughs> yeah. I think the reason for that is that the troublesome content isn't just about the use of certain words. It's about the underlying sensibility and the attitudes. And therefore, those attitudes are going to survive the removal of outdated words. So actually, you could argue that sanitizing the books by removing certain things we would now find offensive, certain phrases or words... You can argue it actually makes things worse. It obscures the racist attitudes that are actually underpinning the stories. And it may make those racist attitudes more palatable by sanding off the edges. So yeah, maybe. On, that le- on that level, I'm not convinced that making minor changes here actually fulfills the stated aim. I suppose what we could ask is, is this all well-intentioned or is it something else? Because I think there's an argument that this is mostly about brand management. You know, right? Um, it's mostly about keeping the cash flow running and keeping you know, these publishers in money. So I think the problem with that is it's a fundamentally dishonest way to approach art, isn't it? Because like what what they're trying to say is that you can make this artwork perennially updated. You can do that to satisfy the preferences of later generations. But the thing is that any artwork is the product of a particular place and time. You know, Mm. it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it for a long time afterwards, but we can Mm. never lose sight of the fact that live and let die was produced within a particular historical context in which people already had issues with it to begin with, but it was seen generally as acceptable. So what do you think about that point, Tony, about brand management? Is this just like the the logic of capitalism, basically, leads to the censorship of these books? It could be. I mean, that's a really good point. You know, you do you do get wonder if it would, for Bond particularly, it would be a case of thinking, blimey, we don't want these books to just be considered racist and then you know, quote unquote, cancelled in the eyes of people, because yeah, it might cause a problem for subsequent generations. I mean, Bond has already been grappling with, in the movies with the relevance of the character in a in a in a world where the, you know the colonial empire that he was born in doesn't exist anymore after the Cold War and all of these things. You know, the films yeah. have, for the last fifteen years have been about that in, in without without necessarily going into that you know specific area about 
you know, the language within Fleming's texts or anything. So if they don't, they're not going to want to have the reputation that these books are old and racist, do not read them. So there could be a little bit of that. Whereas the th- I suppose the difference with Roald Dahl is that this, is, this has been circling around for a long time with Dahl, hasn't it? This isn't a new thing. You know, that th- th- I've been hearing this idea that Roald Dahl was a big old racist amongst people's well, mindset for a long time. There's, well, there's two things there, isn't there? Like, so he's a controversial man because he was undeniably an anti-Semite. But yeah. there's the question of, does that mean, should that have any bearing on how you then treat his work? You know, so... yeah. I don't know if you can use an individual's personal failings as a justification for censoring their work, because I think the problem with that is it's a bit of a slippery slope and yeah, nobody's yeah, yeah. unimpeachably moral and where do you draw the line, you know? I think the thing with Fleming is that, I mean, Fleming's character can be updated for modern sensibilities. The way that is done is through adaptations, isn't it? It's mm. through the Bond movies, which are, you know, the live and let die of the 70s. That obviously has its problems in terms of race and so on, but it's done in a different way to how it would have been in the 50s. Well, it's you know, nothing you like have, the book, is it? It's not, <laughs> nothing like the book. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but then you have like Dynamite Comics have been doing graphic novels of the Bond stories and the, certain changes that probably have been made mm-hmm. there. And they have um, you know other authors brought in to write James Bond novels, like Anthony Horowitz, yeah. who stick to the, mm. the time period, but modernize them in certain senses. I think with the original novels, I think any attempt to make them safe for contemporary audiences, I think fundamentally, I think is misguided <laughs> because I think, mm. like I say, live and let die, you'd have nothing left. It would be five pages long because it's not, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not just um, certain things that are egregious. It's, it goes beyond that. So my preference is to let it stand have a disclaimer saying that, you know, this book is a product of its time. Nowadays, it would probably be written differently. Mm. Realistically, who's reading Live and Let Die these days? I think if you get young yeah. people reading it, it's mm. going to be bookish people who've already maybe worked out a little bit of the context and so on and so forth. So in in my view, I would. I think it's different when Fleming has approved it. I think, like I said, the US edition of Fleming's Live and Let Die was out there for a long time, even within his lifetime. Um, I don't. I can't agree with them when they say we are certain Ian Fleming would have yeah. liked this and approved because we just don't know. No, no. I think that's the right way to go about it. Before we finish with this, I suppose the question, the final question I'd ask is, why does this keep coming back around? You know, why why are we stuck in this perpetual groove of, you know, anxiety about what these authors are writing? I mean, actually, brought up in the conversations we were having was J.K. Rowling, and whether or not there is any trace of some of the problematic views that people feel she has in the Harry Potter books. And there was, there was a bit of a debate. I think that some people were saying, well, there isn't any, but also would you read them now because of Rowling? You know, would you read it because of her views, even if there is a complete divorce in the subject matter? And, and I th- and this just keeps fl- floating around. You know, I think with some of it, with some of these conversations, why is this still happening? Why can't we just accept that? Yeah. Things were things were some things in the past were dodgy, but it's okay because when we don't think those things now, you know, do you know what I mean? But why why are we still stuck in this? Well, I think there are probably a, a range of reasons. I think with the Roald Dahl thing, one thing that's worth bringing up, like I say, so I've spoken to Raquel and she says this is more common than people think, even if the Dahl case seems a bit mm. like it goes a bit further than others. So. I think the fact that um, it's coming from the Daily Telegraph originally, I think they have an interest in stoking up these issues of a culture war. 
Yeah. So the war, the war on ro- they, war on they, woke and all of they that. They definitely do. Yeah. So I think that makes it a big story. That means that we end up talking about it, of course. But I think it can be possible to lose sight of the fact that maybe we should have been having these discussions earlier. Mm. Also, maybe there's a level of this is something that has been accepted for a long time in the book industry that people aren't um, attuned to. Mm. I, I think the difficulty I have with that, though, is that what I try not to do is just, okay, well, I saw this was coming from the Telegraph, so I was a bit skeptical of it, but then I didn't want to just dismiss it out of hand because of that. And when I actually looked into it, you know, when other news outlets started picking it up and so on and so forth, I did think there was something there that was a bit of an overreach. So mm. I think it's a tricky one, isn't it? We try need to try not to be too binary and say, oh, this, because yeah. this is coming from the other side, we're completely against it and vice mm. versa. Mm. Um, but I think that is part of it. I think that it made sense. I think there's a level of media exaggeration as well as something wrong is also going on. I think you and I, and I think this has become increasingly apparent in the conversations we have on this podcast. I don't think we get swept up too much into this whole idea of every a, a, everything that is a little bit conservative, old-fashioned in nature is terrible. You know, I think I think we are we're a little bit more nuanced about that. And I think I think I'm certainly feeling that more as I get older. Actually, weirdly enough, you know, I'm getting I'm getting closer. I'm getting close to the forty seven, the, the age forty seven yeah. Tory cutoff. I've mentioned this before. <laughs> um, no, that will that'll never happen. Promise everyone. But no, it's it's it is that idea that that these these conversations, these points are are they're not easy, and it's not mm. easy to. We shouldn't assign a binary. It's like you said, you know, because that way leads to more conflict ultimately, to more disagreement, to less harmony. And, you know, all of these kind of conversations, they're, they're based on deep-rooted ideas and theories and concepts that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, and you can't resolve them it, it, very easily, you know? No. And I think it's we, we need to keep... Maybe that's maybe that's why this it's a good thing that these things keep coming back around because maybe we need to keep talking about them, like you said. Maybe we need to keep talking about them and recontextualizing some of these ideas now, you know, for who we are now or what we what we want now and who we are as a people now. So maybe it's, it's just figuring out the best way forward, really. And 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 I'm all, I'm all for I'm all for understanding what happened before as a means of doing that. I think the more if we forget some of those older things, then we run the risk of them repeating themselves. I think, yeah, by hiding things away and pretending yeah. things were pretending the past was different to what it actually was like. Exactly. I, I agree with you. I agree mm. with you. And um, what was interesting about this as a story is I was waiting for YouGov to publish some polling numbers about Roald Dahl and did people agree with this or not, but it didn't seem to do that. I think it did seem like most people thought it was a bad idea from what I saw, mm. and I thought it was interesting that uh, Queen Camilla felt empowered to actually comment on it. I don't know if you saw that, but I she didn't. no. She made a comment at some kind of reception uh, that was something to do with uh, the literary world, I think. She said, Please remain true to your calling, unimpeded by those who may wish to curb the freedom of your expression or impose limits on your imagination. So, a bit of a vague statement, but they would have known for sure that that would be taken as a comment on the Roald Dahl story that was like leading the news at that mm. time. So, I think that was telling, because I think they only make comments like that, the royals, if they think that it's kind of a safe topic to actually yeah. express a view on they think that a massive uh, bulk of opinion is behind you know um, a certain perspective and then they might be able to say something like that but uh, so i don't think this actually has felt like too much of a cultural thing in the sense that it felt to me like there weren't actually that many people who s- heard about these changes to roll dial in particular and thought they were a good idea i think there were a few mm. people who felt they were good like unequivocally 
I think mm. there are a lot of people in the middle who are sort of like, well, on the one hand, but on the other. Yeah. And then I think I think probably yeah. most people did seem to think it was a bit too much, you know? I think that's probably accurate, really. And it's been it's an interesting one. We'll, we'll see if this keeps circling around, actually, and uh, yeah. continues to develop. But uh, it's been fascinating to read about for the last couple of weeks. So, um, so yeah, let's let's call it a day then there, Carl. We've... Um, yeah. You know, we've we've gone through some of these topics in in a bit of detail. We haven't got tons and tons of stuff, but we do have more on the bonus Discourse Plus episode that you will be able to listen to right Ooh. now if you pop over there. Because uh, we're going to dig into some film chatter, aren't we? There's a couple of interesting film pieces that we're gonna we're going to explore a little bit more there. So we are we're going to we're going to talk about things like the the power of mediocrity. It isn't just going to be as um, Talking about the mediocrity of our own podcasting. I was going to say. It's a broader topic. <laughs> you got there before I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking about that. Talking about um, length not being everything. Now, don't worry, listeners. This isn't another Valentine's Day uh, episode. It's about filmmaking. Again, you got there before I could make the joke. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it should it should be a good little bonus, I think. So, uh, yeah, yeah, hope, yeah. Hope to hear. hope to see people over there on the Discourse Plus for that. Yes, please do join us. Please do join us. All of the details how to do that are in the show notes or on social media again. So uh, that'd be great. Well, uh, until then, we'll see you uh, next week, guys, when we'll have um, we'll have some Oscars chat, won't we? Because uh, we'll have the Oscar results. So that'll be that'll be fun to dig into. I need you to brace yourself, Tony, because I think I know what's going to win. Oh. I think it's not going to go down that well. Oh. Not with me either, to be fair, but I think especially with you. Oh. So I need you to spend some time psychologically fortifying your defenses. On I that am. One, so I am. I promise. I am. <laughs> I suppose you never know. There could be a big surprise. It happened last year with Coda. Yeah. Top Top Gun Maverick is going to sweep the board. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to manifest it. It's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, right. Until then, guys, have a great week. We appreciate you and we'll see you soon. See ya. Bye. Do you like crime stories, books, and people talking about those things? Then you should check out the Red and Buried podcast. A murder? A murder. Oh. I'm Frankie. And I'm Sarah. And in each episode, we pick a different theme and surprise and delight each other with a cheeky little review. As you started reading it, I was like, this sounds like a romance novel. And then you got to monstrous crime. Yay, there it is. That's what we're here for, isn't it? We're also regularly visited by many talented and best-selling authors, including the likes of Chris Whitaker, Elizabeth with Haynes, Emma Stonex, Fiona Cummins, and a whole lot more. I li- obviously listened to the podcast, and I listened to you interviewing Chris Whitaker, and I thought, oh, hey, that sounds like a really good fun podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you like your crime books with a big side of silly, this is the podcast for you. Listen to the Red and Buried podcast right now, brought to you by the We Made This Network. Ooh.